Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. We have so many guests on this show making a difference in our lives, making a difference all around the world with the expertise that they bring. And yet so many of you are reaching out to me saying, you want more. It's not enough, just what we're putting on these podcast episodes for you. And so I am here to extend a very warm welcome to you to our Difference Maker community where you can join for as little as $5 a month to get all this extra content out the gate, you're going to get 30 plus minisodes of exclusive content not available for the regular podcast listeners and an exclusive mini-sode every month. And you'll get exclusive voting power to help us pick podcast topics and more. And that's with our changers tier. There's three different main tiers and then an extra uh, larger tier. But whatever tier that you join at, you will be included in this extra content And I know that many of you are wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so even though it gets a little wild in there sometimes because of how deep we go, I want you to join us there. This extra content is very special. It means a great deal to me to be a part of this community with you. And I would love to just exchange uh, ideas or perspectives that you have around these different episodes. And that's the place where we do it. So please show up to our Difference Maker community. Give us $5 out of your pocket every month. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun in there because we do, and I would love for you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash a world of difference to join us there. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. Our guest today really needs Very little introduction. Many of you already know who Oz Guinness is. Yes, Dr. Oz Guinness is on the show today. He is an author and editor of more than 35 books, including The Dust of Death, The Call, Carpe Diem Redeemed, The Magna Carta of Humanity, so many books. And he's also the founder of Trinity Forum, a prominent social critic and a frequent speaker who has addressed audiences worldwide. Many of you know him as the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer of Guinness beer. But he's also a missionary kid born in China to medical missionary parents. And after he witnessed the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, he and his family were expelled with many other foreigners in 1951. And they returned to England where he was educated and served as a freelance reporter with the BBC. And he's been in the U.S. living in D.C. with his wife, Jenny. And um, since coming to the U.S. in 1984, he's been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute. He was also the lead drafter of the Williamsburg Charter, celebrating the First Amendment, and has been a senior fellow at East-West Institute in New York, where he drafted the Charter for Religious Freedom. Oss also co-authored the public school curriculum, Living with Our Deepest Differences. 
Dr. Guinness has had a lifelong passion, basically, to make sense of our extraordinary modern world and to stand between the worlds of both scholarship and ordinary life, helping each to understand the other, particularly when advanced modern life touches on the profound issues of faith. We are so excited to give a very warm welcome to the one, the only, Dr. Oss Guinness. Hello, Oz. Welcome, a very warm welcome to the A World of Difference podcast today. Thank you, Laurie. Great privilege to be with you. Oh, well, the honor is all mine. Um, there's quite a few fans of the A World of Difference podcast who are very excited about this interview. So thank you so much for coming on. And I'm going to start with question number one. You probably get this one a lot, um, but I know that you your family is in the Guinness Brewery business in Dublin. <laughs> and so some of our listeners want to know this pressing question of what age you were when you were finally allowed to taste your world famous family beer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> To be a, I love, I love our family. I'm more of a wine drinker than a beer drinker, but I do enjoy our family product. I can't honestly remember when I first had it. Sometime as a teenager, probably before the age I was allowed to, being at a school like that. But I can't <laughs> honestly remember. Long time ago. Long time ago, indeed. Well, you are such a perfect guest here for us today on the A World of Difference podcast because you have an incredible background like so many of our listeners do. Um, you, I understand, are a missionary kid who was born in China to medical missionaries and lived in Nanking during the war. And um, and I know that you've, you know, heard you speak about how you've lost a couple of brothers. You know, the Japanese soldiers were, you know, killing many and it was a really dark time. Um, of all the things you went through, uh, being called a foreign devil. I've read the stories of Lottie Moon, who's um, a big hero of mine, and how she had to walk through some of that in China as well. And I know that, you know, whether you're a missionary kid or a third culture kid of any kind, a lot of us have walked through difficult situations around the world. So I just wanted to give you a chance to start off with kind of what that experience was like for you and how you reflect on that very, very traumatic time in your life at this point. Well, you're, you're right, Laurie. My grandfather was the first of our family to go to China, and he was the first medical doctor in the province of Henan. And he actually treated the Empress Dowager and the last emperor, Puyi. Wow. So my parents were born there, and I and my two brothers were born there. We were there as the war broke out. There was a terrible famine in which five million died in three months, including my two brothers. And then we moved to Nanking. So I was there in the beginning of the Chinese revolution and for the first two years of the reign of terror. So my first 10 years were surrounded with death and violence and famine and war and revolution. But I would say it gave me two things. One, an incredible realism and two, I saw my parents, and for instance, living in Nanking in the revolution. And my father was tried, trumped up charges, which all fell apart, but he might well have been executed too. You know, I never, ever saw my parents' faith waver. And their idea, God is, can be trusted. He's greater than all situations. Have faith in God. Have no fear. And so that realism come trust has been with me ever since. Wow, it's just incredible. I can really relate to that, honestly. Having been raised by missionaries myself um, in Venezuela, we had some coup attempts that were kind of scary when I was growing up. 
And then as a missionary, you know, overseas and working in Indonesia, um, we had civil war, tsunami, things that really, mm -hmm. you know, I remember times after, after, after the tsunami, my husband said to me, wow, if God doesn't do something big out of this, I don't know if my faith can handle it. Turns out our faith could, and God did do great things, but we don't always see all of it, right? And that's what's hard, and that's what gets us through the suffering. So I love your perspective on that. And I would, you know. Well, you know, talking about what you don't always see, Laurie, you know, my mother and father, when they were finally released from China, came back to Britain in the mid 50s. And I went around with them sometimes when my dad was speaking, and people would come by and they'd say, Henry, so sad that your whole life's been wasted. Mm. And, you know, when they left China, and this is after 150 years or so of missionary work, they're probably less than three quarters of one million. But as you know, today, there are 80 to 100, maybe 120 million Christians. And when my dad died in his 90th year, he went back to China and he met people he'd led to faith 50 years earlier. And he was just so thrilled to see what the Lord had done. And far from being wasted with frustration, it was amazing what the Lord had done. Oh, that's so incredible. You know, I hear those kind of stories about China and other places around the world, um, whether the persecution and oppression comes from the, the state or whether it comes from the community itself or both, as is the case and sometimes in Muslim nations. But um, I do hear of that quite a bit. And I, I would love your kind of perspective. I know that, um, you have this very third culture experience. You have China in your history, and then you're kind of an Anglo-Irish at this point, but you also um, love America and I live in America, I guess, at this point. And so as you're looking from all these different lenses um, at the church uh, in the US today, you know, we have a lot of these conversations going on right now, like what's happening with the Western church. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, the McDonaldization of America can be one of our greatest, um, you know, points of <laughs> contention where everything needs to happen fast and it needs to happen now. And especially when we're young, we often feel that way. But how would you say your perspective of that very story of how long it can take sometimes? Um, how would you say your perspective is about the church today and what we should be patient about and in a hurry about? <laughs> well, let me say a word or two about the West. Because if you look at the West, we're at what's called a civilizational moment. All the great civilizations go through it, a moment when they lose touch with the inspiration or the dynamism that made them, and they either have to renew it or replace it or decline. It's relatively simple. Now, clearly, the faith that made the West is the Christian faith with its deeply Jewish roots and yet it's cut that off. So the West is in trouble, certainly the Western churches. And you can see ever since the 18th century enlightenment, the rise of enlightenment secularism, trying to replace the West in terms of the Christian faith. And more recently, you can see a lot of other views, a, a much more radical views like cultural Marxism and things like that, which are not only against the Christian faith and not only against uh, the West, they're much more radical all around. So we're in an incredibly interesting moment. The Western church is in trouble, needs revival, needs awakening. But thank God the global church is doing extremely well. 
Oh, amen to that. Yes, I know that uh, my experience of being raised in the global church and small little house churches in Venezuela, they're thriving under um, the Chavez and Maduro years even, um, and teaching me so much about faith into this day, you know? Um, I think that whatever government system one has, you know, and I lived under Sharia law for 10 years in Indonesia, where he job and everything, you know, it was not my personal conviction, but um, as somebody who cares very deeply about cultures and wants to be respectful of others' cultures, um, you know, I was willing to submit myself to laws that I didn't necessarily agree with in order to do the work that I felt like God had asked me and called me to do there, which is to love those neighbors well. And so um, I think there's so much we can learn from the global church and how they're responding to all different kinds of governments and cultures and situations, economic situations. There's a lot of diversity in the global church that has really formed me. I, I would be interested to know, like at this point in your life, like where you're living now, do you do you still have Chinese friends that you know? Do you speak any Mandarin or was that something that you left behind when you were young? Well, I actually don't speak Mandarin because I went to an English speaking school and then when the communists came, we weren't allowed to speak to the Chinese. So my parents are fluent in Mandarin and I only know a few words, sadly, I wish I'd kept it alive, but we weren't allowed to. And as you hinted in the introduction, we'd go out in the streets and immediately you'd have an instant crowd crying out, death to the blue eyed foreign devils and so on. So it wasn't a time to develop my Chinese, sadly. No, I have Chinese friends, yes, but my close friends are mostly in Hong Kong, Singapore. My parents lived in Singapore, as you did, and they also lived in Indonesia, in Jakarta and Malang for a while. I no don't way. know how you were there, but I've been to both those countries many times. Wow, that's amazing to think about. Yeah, Indonesia is such a vast place. I have friends here in the Bay Area that they're like, yeah, I've been to Indonesia several times. I'm like, where? Bali. I'm like, yeah, Bali, it should be its own country. It's a very, the one little Hindu island and the largest Muslim nation in the world. And don't get me wrong, I've been to Bali a lot of times too. Our family loves Bali, but there's such vast diversity within Indonesia and all around Asia. It's, it's, it was a privilege to be there 20 years. And I'm sure you've enjoyed your travels back, even as an adult. It's just, it's a wonderful place with um, people, the global church, especially the Asian church, the Singaporean church just really taught me a great deal, a great deal about um, harmony and why that's so biblical um, in ways I hadn't seen as a Westerner before, but also um, how direct communication and indirect communication are both valuable as people of faith. And uh, yeah, I just I learned so many things from my Singaporean friends. I know that here in the US we have um, we, we have a lot of diversity, obviously, our you know, the, from the indigenous peoples and all their diversity that was here before Western um, Puritans and all these different people showed up. But even just, um, you know, all around our borders now, people forever have wanted to be a part of America for various reasons. And so I would be really interested in your perspective as a global citizen, as somebody who's been a third culture kid and lived in a lot of nations at different times and traveled, what is your perspective on how Christians can respond to being good neighbors in America in our situations right now? Well, you could look at it in American terms, and you could look at it in Christian terms, and they overlap at certain points. Now, take, take America first, because it's a huge problem. You know, America's not united, as many other nations were, by racial background and things like that. 
So there's an incredible diversity from the beginning. This is why America was called the first new nation, the first modern new nation. But the original motto was incredibly important, a pluribus unum, out of many, one. So you had to have a way of getting people from Ireland or Mexico or Italy or China, wherever it was, and making them American. And that, of course, was done in the public schools. They taught the first principles of Americanism, and you had the unum to balance the pluribus. But in the last generation, the unum has been thrown out. It's considered coercive. So now there's no uniting American first principles. And of course, people flooding in. I'm not against diversity at all. As a social scientist, we often say, everyone is now everywhere. <laughs> in other words, you've got travel, you've got the media, you've got all sorts of things that mean we have unprecedented diversity. But you've got to have points of unity to balance it for a country like this one. So America's in trouble because it's lost the unum and it's becoming balkanized. Oh, and yes. Christians, mm. We see it somewhat differently. Yes, we love everyone, but we know that while there are differences, the differences make a difference. And so at a certain point, everyone will live true to their views and some are good, some are bad, some are not so bad. And so you have to know how the different worldviews work out. And so the differences do matter. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who talk of diversity as if it's all inclusive and differences don't matter at all. No, they do matter. Mm -hmm. And the differences make a difference. Yes. Oh, I couldn't agree more on that particular point. Yes. You know, living in Singapore, it's the most religiously diverse nation in the world. And they have maintained peace. You know, the 60s were a kind of tumultuous time there with some race riots that were you know, based a lot in different religious differences there, but um, they really, they pass these harmony laws. They're very controversial in some ways, but um, even in the nuance of it, there was so much that I learned from that about how to be respectful in our conversations and actually how to have very deep conversations with people I disagree with and still find that common ground. You know, that I would say most people I met in Singapore love their country. It's a great country, a social democracy. It's, um, you know, gotten in trouble with Amnesty International on some things that, you know, we probably would disagree with for sure. But um, Singaporeans themselves, whether they're Muslim or Hindu or Christian or all these different religions, I find that there's a lot of friendships across these lines. And I, I learned so much from them about how to appreciate the differences and also how to have some hard conversations. And I think that that depth of conversation is where we get to know one another and can kind of solve some of the issues in our society. So, um, I'm going to ask you this question and you can feel free to give a very political answer or straightforward one. I'll let you decide how you want to answer it. Um, so I know you're not a U.S. citizen, but if you were, would you identify as a Republican, a Democrat, another party, an independent, or would you even know? <laughs> no, I, I am not American. I'm a great admirer of this country, but I am deliberately nonpartisan and try and, because I'm a admirer of this country, I, I follow St. Augustine. How do you understand a nation? You don't look at the size of its population or the strength of its military or the GDP or GNP. You look at what it loves supremely. And there's no question, what America loves supremely is freedom. Yep. Now, when you say freedom, you can understand that in a million different ways, but American freedom was originally 
shaped through the Reformation, and it's a view of ordered freedom that is covenantal, although we use the word constitutional. And so I fight for what I see as the original first principles of the American experiment, because I think, along with Judaism, they are the highest views of freedom the world's ever seen. And neither party really understands them today. So President Trump talks of making America great again and President Biden about restoring the soul of America. Neither of them say what makes America great in the first place. And that's what needs to be recovered. So, you know, Lincoln talked about a new birth of freedom after his Gettysburg Address. What America needs now is a new, new birth of freedom. Mm. and leaders who will know how to call America back to the best while facing some of the worst, such as slavery and racism. Now, you mentioned Singapore. Singapore actually achieves that peace through a sometimes rather heavy-headed government attitude. Yep. Whereas at its best, America traditionally did it through religious freedom. Mm-hmm. So for 300 years, America had the most advanced religious freedom, probably the world's ever seen in a big nation. But again, a sea change in the last 20 years. And now in many circles, religious freedom is considered a code word for bigotry or discrimination. But religious freedom is the glue that allows what you love, diversity, mm-hmm. inclusion. You can live with deep differences if you respect people's freedom of conscience. But sadly, that's now going here. Yeah, I we have some serious concerns post January 6th and even some recent events that cause us concern, you know, and um, uh, I don't know. I, I grew up in a nation in Venezuela, which was considered a model democracy for South America. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my senior year of high school and my international school, Hugo Chavez did a coup attempt and was put in jail. He got out of jail and then in 1999 ran for president and won. And I I kind of lived in these years watching the country that I loved um, be told words that sounded wonderful and in reality were very different in action and practice. And so when I, <laughs> I I ended up in college studying my bachelor's in sociology, and I remember studying the way leaders can sway people with words, and they could even be very educated and intellectual and very, I mean, people trained at Harvard University or Oxford University might still sometimes fall for these words because they sound Will you just believe people's words? Most of us do. Most people believe the words they hear. And so words are just so, so powerful. And some of that does cause me concern. So I would love to hear your perspective, if you're willing to share it, on kind of the things that happened on January 6th in the United States from the perspective of somebody who's not a U.S. citizen but who loves America. Do you have any thoughts on that? (laughs) Many, (laughs) but I'm not sure we have time to get into it. I do (laughs) think the full story has not yet come out. And I would just say bluntly, though, the January the 6th committee is not following American due process. You've got doctored evidence. You love the notion, I've heard one of your podcasts, of hearing, which is hearing both sides, hearing all sides, if you've got many. They're not doing that. The January the 6th committee is as dangerous as some of the things it's trying to resist. Now, I don't think the full story has come out, but it will eventually, I hope. In other words, American freedom is at stake. 
Oh, I agree. And, you know, we're seeing that kind of thing in the church as well. Sometimes there'll be situations, um, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I'm not affiliated with Southern Baptist anymore, but I still love so many people. It was part of my um, faith formation and heritage and many wonderful people that are still Southern Baptists and leaders even in the convention. But we've seen, especially this summer with some of the stuff that came out, like the truth, it, it does come out eventually, but if it takes that long to come out and there's been cover-ups by leaders all along about abuses of power and that type of thing, it's just so much more painful when it finally does come out in that mm -hmm. way. But I, I agree with you, whether it's you know, before somebody like Ravi Zacharias dies or after he dies, the truth does come out and it's very painful when it turns out people have covered things up. So I would love your perspective mm -hmm. on how you feel like some of this, um, I would say there's a lot of concerns around um, Christian nationalism and the state and the church being tied together in ways that cause us to think of Constantine and things that weren't necessarily good. <laughs> and so what is your perspective around some of the Christian nationalism and the way power and religion can be tied in unhealthy ways? Well, let me again put it in Lincoln's terms. Lincoln introduced the notion of under God. And under God is the polar opposite of the old phrase, God on our side. God on our side, you're using faith, religion, to bolster whatever the status quo is. So the Germans had got midst uns, God with us, on their belts right through the Nazi era. That's horrendous when faith is used to bolster nationalism. But Lincoln introduced under God. Now, if we're under God, that's an acknowledgement of the authority of God and of our being under it, so we're accountable. So patriotism, absolutely. And the trouble with a lot of the smart aleck Christian thinkers today is they attack all patriotism as nationalism. I agree with Orwell. People need to have a sense of belonging. Patriotism is a part of our belonging. We should have a pride. I'm a proud Irishman. You should be. You know, There's a lot to be proud of. <laughs> We should all have a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Patriotism mm -hmm. is good if it's under God. But when it's not under God, then patriotism becomes the idolatry of nationalism. Now, I'd add one thing again, because there are a lot of smart aleck Christian thinkers who attack all patriotism as nationalism. And they do so, whether they're aware of it or not, from the perspective of globalism. Mm. In other words, in the past, nationalism was a threat to the local, the federal and the local. Today, globalism is a threat to both the nation and the local. Now, we as Christians, of course, are deeply global. The promise to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. Jews and Christians have global globalism in their DNA. We're not afraid of globalism at all. But globalism is a philosophy. Globalization is a process that we all welcome. So we've got to clear up a lot of these terms. And a lot of the attacks on Christian nationalism are unfair. Mm. I've been accused of being a Christian nationalist because I argued for the best of the American experiment, not even American. But I've got long <laughs> chapters in books attacking civil religion. Whenever you idolize your own country, that's nationalism, that's civil religion, that's appalling. No Christian should be a nationalist. 
but we mm. should all be patriots. It's a good distinction. Yeah, that helps me think through it more deeply as well, because there really is a lot of nuance there. And I think that one thing I've noticed being um, back in America now for the past couple of years, after having been in Asia for 20 years, is it feels like a lot of the nuance is not welcome anymore in the conversation. Yeah. And that makes me really sad <laughs> because uh, I feel like we want to pit people against one another. You know, it's like very binary thinking. You're either Republican or you're Democrat. You're either conservative or you're liberal. You're either pro-life or you're pro-choice. There's no nuance welcome in the conversation. And it's like very polarizing. I, I think there's some outside sources. A lot of people, you know, blame where I'm at here in Silicon Valley and some of the social media, which I do think clearly has played a part, but it's not the only reason. This was something I think that was already brewing in ourselves. And I really appreciate you bringing in some of the nuance around that because it helps me think more deeply too. I've heard you talk uh, uh, before about how the American Revolution you feel like was rooted in Torah in the heart of freedom is covenant. And you mentioned some of that earlier. Um, and so I just want to ask this nuance because I want to hear your your perspective on it, you know, because some would argue, obviously, I am a person who reads the scriptures, cares very deeply. I went to seminary. I really uh, read my Bible every day when I whenever I can and try to dig deeply and think think deeply in multiple languages as I read the scriptures. But some would argue that the covenant peoples, um, they weren't equal, especially when we read, you know, like Leviticus 27, because it's clear that women are less valued than men in that situation. And women weren't educated. And this principle influenced really how women were not allowed to vote, even in the U.S. for 144 years, based on a covenant that really favored men over women in harmful ways, not in ways Jesus ever did, right? But um, that that kind of influenced some of the American experiment early on where, you know, we mentioned earlier some of the racism that's a part of the history, the, you know, dark stronghold underbelly of our, our history, um, and even some of the slaughter of indigenous people. So all of those, I think, are hard conversations <laughs> to bring in the nuance. So how would you... Um, I would say, how would you look back on that early covenant kind of situation with the U.S. being formed and some of the mistakes maybe that were made that you wish had been different? Well, let me go back to the original thing. You know, a lot of people say, where did tolerance and freedom come from? The French Enlightenment. Nonsense. You know, in the 17th century, it was called the biblical century. Out of the Reformation in the 16th century, and even people who are atheists like Thomas Hobbes, were fascinated with what they called the Hebrew Republic. Because if you think, when the church became the official religion of Rome under the Emperor Theodosius in 380, the church declared that it would follow Roman structures. So Rome had a Caesar, consuls, senators, and the church had pope, cardinal, bishops, and so on, structural. And as Lord Acton, the Catholic layman, said, all power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It was the structural power of the church that was so corrupt and oppressive. The Reformation, though, went back through the Bible to covenantalism. Now, let's be clear, though. When that came across, and the Mayfile Compact was a covenant, and so on and so on, when that became a constitution, slavery and racism were an enormous sin, evil contradiction. 
I mean, at the very time, Samuel Johnson, the English dictionary creator, he said, how is it that those who are yelping about, I'm quoting him now, yelping mm -hmm. about freedom are the drivers of Negroes? Mm. William Wilberforce, who was the great abolitionist, he pleaded with Jefferson to create a, what he called a concert of benevolence to tackle slavery. Jefferson wouldn't. He pleaded with President Monroe. They wouldn't. And then came the cotton gin. So there's no question that by simple biblical terms, American slavery was a sin, an evil, a contradiction, the hypocrisy, and it should have been rooted out from the beginning. Now, I think we've got to be absolutely frank about that. And every other form of whether it's the oppression of women, you have people, I have got a wonderful woodprint of um, Roger Williams being welcomed by the Indians upstairs. Hmm. He had a very different attitude. Others were terrible with the Native Americans. Yeah. So we've got to say whenever there was wrong, we call it wrong. And we need to ask God's forgiveness and put it right. Now, hmm. the question is though, under which understanding do you do it? Do you do it according to the radical left? Or do you do it according to the biblical way? That's the big choice America faces. Or put another way, there are three big problems facing evil of slavery. You've got an establishment with a total blind spot. They don't even have moral categories to look at it. Then you've got on one side a position which has been pretty strong, not now. I call them the soft forgivers. American uplift, inspiration. No wrongs because we're all really basically right. Then now you've got the hard unforgivers on the radical left. And the biblical view is quite different with liberation and atonement. Mm -hmm. Now Lincoln, in only 49 months as president, gave nine different proclamations to the Lord. We need a Lincoln-like leader today who will call America back to a rededication and atonement, confession, acknowledgement, and asking God's forgiveness, what have been profoundly evil. Now, sadly, we don't have a leader like that on the landscape at the moment. Yeah, no, I... <clears throat> I mean, so much of what you said, I agree with. There's there's a few little things that I think, huh, I don't know if I would say it that way, but I love your perspective and it really helps me think through it more deeply. I think when I hear what you're saying, I I wonder, it, it, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of, you've probably seen some of the stuff in the news this week with the former prime minister of Japan being shot and killed, which is a horrible tragedy. Very shocking. You know, Tokyo has always been the first safest city in the world and Singapore has always been second. And so we've always been aware of how safe it can be in a place like Japan. And um, and yet we're also aware, you mentioned your experience with Japanese growing up is, you know, the slaughter of Chinese, you know, indigenous and all kinds of people around you and you're in the nation you were living in. And of course, my experience in Indonesia and Singapore, there's a dark history of what Japan has done. And, um, and my understanding is, you know, some of the comfort women from Korea, you mm -hmm. know, every Wednesday at the embassy have protested every year for years. And <clears throat> And they just want an apology, right? <clears throat> they want that kind of atonement that you're talking about. Obviously, there's some cultural situations going on in Japan, and there's some, you know, very indirect communication pre preferences. But there is a time when you just need it to be said, you know. 
Mm -hmm. No, but almost every great nation has its dark past. So Germany was the most educated, civilized culture, the world of Goethe and Beethoven and the death camps. Yeah. You know, I'm partly English. Look at our colonialism. Yeah. And you could go on down the line. And sadly, America has it too. But we've got to be able to say these things were wrong. They were evil. And we've got to confess them, put them behind them. But if America doesn't resolve it, the American past will ruin the American future. And at the moment, America has no mechanism, no narrative, no way of redressing evil. And that's the tragedy. And I think the left is making it worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would probably word it personally that it's both the left and the right that are at fault. I just see the polarization and the pitting it against one another because but I don't, I mean, the, my experience is- the, the right doesn't address evil. <laughs> there's, a big, there's a big reason, simple reason, Laurie. Okay. Both the right and the left are dangerous. Yeah. But there's a simple reason why the left is more dangerous. The right is ugly and extreme and often evil. But the strength of the left is its social location. You have some even in Congress. You have many in the media. You have many, many more in academia. And now you have people in business. For Europeans, the great surprise of where we are today is woke business. In other words, it was always thought that American entrepreneurialism would be a redoubt you know, for conservative ideas and free yeah. market, but yeah. no longer. If you just look at social location, the left is far more powerful. Right, I'm sorry, the right is very evil and ugly. I don't dispute that for yeah. a moment. Yeah. It hasn't a chance of taking over the country. Yeah, it's a fascinating perspective. Look at the way the evil attack at the, the left. Now, the left is postmodern. Truth right. is, God is dead. Truth is dead. You only have power. So you weaponize victims and set up a power conflict. The Romans were clear about what happens then. The only way you can have peace is what they called the peace of despotism. Because you have a power that is unrivaled and can put down all other powers, then you have peace. But that's authoritarianism. Right. And that's a disaster. <laughs> It's a false piece, yeah. And you look at the biblical way of addressing truth to power and calling for repentance and mm -hmm. forgiveness and reconciliation. As Lincoln says, again, turning enemies into friends. A very, very different position. But the trouble is, who in America now addresses the nation Christianly or Jewishly, if you like, with some of these great ideas? No one does. It's left to be private and spiritual. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely taken a turn over the decades that I've watched from the outside, you know, living in other countries. <clears throat> and it's definitely not the America that I was born into in 1975. A lot has changed. But a lot of I think that was hidden has become clear as well. And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, we, we see now a lot of what was going on with the moral majority. You've got um, Jerry Falwell and some of the things that have come clear now that were very, I would say, nefarious in nature um, that used God and ways to gain political power. Yeah, so I would be interested to know you. You mentioned how you feel like the, the right is certainly evil as well. Just your perspective on 
what happened with the moral majority and kind of where we are now, um, where people have used God in order to get votes and gain political power in ways that seem to have not been very Christian at all. Well, Laurie, I'm an evangelical, but of the William Wilberforce type of evangelicalism, and you remember my family supported him and they were friends of Wilberforce and all the great reforms yeah. which uh, Wilberforce and Shastri and other evangelicals did. That's, that's my background. But over here, when the Protestant mainline was sidelined, as they put it, it became increasingly liberal and irrelevant, evangelicalism took center stage, particularly after Jimmy Carter and Paul's conversion. But it was often shallow. Then in 1975, with the rise of moral majority and the reactions to Roe v. Wade, the trouble was Christians or evangelicals swung from an overly privatized faith. You know, they were described as privately engaging, publicly relevant. They swung from an overly private faith to an overly public faith without any sense of how you engage public life. So they were politicized. And that's the tragedy of evangelicalism. They didn't think Christianly as they entered politics and they supported candidates uncritically. And so faith was used, religion was used to bolster the conservative cause. Now that's all a disaster. You see, look at South Africa or you look at Ulster. Whenever religion is used to bolster the status quo, it's a disaster for both. Mm. And it simply doesn't work. And so you've had an, a huge number of scandals and enormous hypocrisies and a huge exposure and evangelicalism. So the tragedy of evangelicalism is that the people of the good news, because evangelical simply means to define your faith in your life by the good news of Jesus. The evangelicals, the people of the good news, become extremely bad news. And much of evangelicalism today has grown toxic. And so we truly need an awakening across the whole church in the West and certainly in America. The scandal of the American church, this is the one nation in the Western world where the church is still a strong majority. If you look at Britain, France, Germany, Holland, the church is a tiny minority. But here, the church is a huge majority not as it was, but much stronger than most people. So you take our friends, the Jews, 2% of America, but they punch well above their weight, intellectually, culturally, in all sorts of ways, and all credit to them. Whereas we were followed to Jesus are called to be salt and light, and yet we're uninfluential. So we've got to think through how we make a difference constructively. Yeah, no, it's it's an excellent point. You know, as we talk about these things, we talk about um, the good parts of America, the way, um, you know, so many aspects of it were different and new and revolutionary on our planet in terms of how a state could be run and separated from religion, the church and state separation, which is so core. Um, and yet, um, you know, we also know, like we've mentioned, there was a lot of racism, there was chattel slavery, there was women were allowed to vote for the first 144 years, indigenous peoples were slaughtered in the name of Christianity and the state at the same time. And so, 
you know, we mentioned this whole, you know, in Christianity, uh, we have a concept and even in Judaism of this whole reconciliation process, the whole Yom Kippur. I know Dr. Scott McKnight, who's a friend, really talks a lot about this in his book, A Church Called Tove. Like we need to revisit Yom Kippur and have these public confessions when abuses of power have taken place um, so that we can help the healing process, the restoration process be possible. And so I, I agree with you on so much of what you're saying. It would be really wonderful to have a leader who could help us heal, who could bring us together as Americans and say, whatever your perspective is, here's where it was wrong. And how can we be a part of both confession and um, forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation? And the, you know, it, it does need to start with the confession, I think is the, the tragic part is we don't want our politicians my husband grew up in Asia too, is also a missionary kid. He grew up in Thailand and he said for years, why is it that American politicians can never say they're sorry or they have regrets? Like it's, it should be okay to say you did something wrong and you're learning, you made a mistake. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, he's making a very important point. You know, I remember once listening to an interview with Michel Foucault. And you know that name, one of the great postmodern thinkers and man who says that without truth, there is only power and so on. He, he And you remember he died of AIDS, catching it in the San Francisco bathhouse. But I remember him saying once, the only thing he admired about the Christian faith was confession. And I picked up my ears at that point, and he made this very interesting remark. In confession, a voluntary confession, not coerced, in confession, someone does something extremely rare morally. They go on record against themselves. I've sinned, lied, I committed adultery, I screwed up, whatever it is. In other words, in the Jewish and biblical view, the heart of sin is a refusal of responsibility. And confession is saying, no, the chickens have come home to roost. It's me. Mm. Think of Psalm 15, David's confession. Yeah. So confession is an incredibly important point because it clears the innocent and brings the guilt home to the mm. one who's wronged. Mm. Yes, so true. Totally agree with that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I just have really appreciated this very thoughtful conversation. Um, it's always fun and interesting to meet another missionary kid and just hear our experiences. And we all bring such diversity of perspectives to this conversation. I love the parts that we found agreement in, which were way more than the parts that we might've worded a little bit differently. But um, I think what centers us together is our strong faith in God and wanting the world to be better. And, um, and I really just appreciate your um, years of experience, the many books that you've written, we're just highlighting one today, and I'm going to link that one in the show notes for everybody. Um, but you've written quite a few books out there and have a lot to say, and we've all benefited from your years and years of wisdom. So thank you for sharing it with us today. I do have one fun little question to, to round us out here at the end, <laughs> which is, um, we want to know in the World of Difference podcast community, if you're a Star Wars fan and what it meant to you to have, I think, a fellow fam family member to play Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is that right or wrong? Is that a rumor? <laughs> Actually, Alec Guinness, who one of the best character actors of all time is by his own confession if you read his memoir he's an illegitimate son <laughs> maybe of a guinness heir but he doesn't say so 
So he's the one Guinness not actually related by blood to me. (laughs) But I was a great admirer of Alec Guinness. He was an extraordinary actor. But I don't take a position on the Star Wars. Well, that's good to know. Thanks for indulging our, our audience. And thank you so much for being on today. How can people find you and your writing and to get a hold of your new book? Well, my website is osguinness.com. As people who know the beer know, yep. <laughs> guinness.com. And you can see my books there and some books on and so on. But a great privilege to be with you, Laura, and especially to know we've been in some of the same parts of the world. I know. Uh, Singapore very well. My parents lived there for many, many years, and I remember it as a boy before Lee Kuan Yew. Wow. Well, Lee Kuan Yew was a very controversial but special leader. We happened to be there when he died and no friends that were in the procession of his parade. And my own son, who was really young at the time, just cried. He was like, he was such a great man. So, you know, Singapore owes him a great debt. And and then his son, who's been prime minister for many years as well, um, like many leaders, very controversial and doesn't always get everything right, but did a did Singapore a great service, and we uh, we learned a lot from his leadership, right and wrong. <laughs> but thanks for being on today. We really appreciate your perspective, and it is wonderful to know you. And maybe we'll have you on the show again when you write your next book. Oh, thank you, Laurie. <laughs> All right. God bless us. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.
as we're finishing this episode, if you're thinking, I really wish I could learn more or go a little bit deeper. Well, that's what our Difference Maker community is for. I would love to welcome you in to join the rest of us there. Once again, um, it's only $5 a month to join the price of a latte at your local coffee shop. You can join at our Changers tier. Difference Makers is a community that really means so much to me. It's very special because each time I have a guest on the show, I record something um, outside of what we give to just the regular podcast audience where we go a little bit deeper and then I post those video episodes in this community and we can discuss them. But also at the very uh, beginning tier, which is our changers tier of this community, you'll get exclusive voting power and help pick podcast topics that give us you know, more of what we want from your perspective. You'll have access to exclusive um, 30 plus mini-sodes that aren't out there for the general public, and you'll get every month an exclusive monthly bonus mini-sode. At our Groundbreakers level, which is $10 a month, you can join and get all of that, but also priority access to submit questions to the podcast, and you'll get an additional two exclusive monthly bonus mini-sodes. And at our Trailblazers tier, which is $15 a month, the price of three lattes a month, um, you can get all of that plus also three exclusive monthly bonus minisodes um, and a patron shout out. So I would love for you to join us at any of those tiers. Um, it'll help you come into this community, be in the midst of all of us, other difference makers, and we'd love to hear your perspective. I certainly would. It's a place to engage more with me and the audience around what you like, what you're resonating with, and once again, go deeper with each of our guests. So please join us in this membership community. I would love to hear your perspective and love to share this extra content with you. So show up at patreon.com slash a world of difference. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.